welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, what's wrong with the Nationality and Borders Bill? Few new laws have attracted such widespread condemnation, including from Conservative MPs and peers. The bill returns to the House of Commons today. And ministers say it will allow the country to fulfil a key Brexit pledge of allowing the country to, quote, take full control of its borders. They insist that it will fix what they regard as a broken asylum system. Members of the House of Lords haven't seen it that way. They've defeated several key clauses in the bill, although MPs could yet reverse those changes. Now the legislation is back in the Commons. Clauses the Lords didn't like included one that would mean refugees who arrived in the UK via what the government deems to be an unofficial route could be jailed for up to four years. Another controversial clause would give the government right to strip people of their citizenship. Then there's the proposal by Home Secretary Priti Patel to process asylum seekers overseas, a measure previously adopted by Australia. There's talk of a Tory backbench rebellion on this, with Ghana, Rwanda, Albania and Denmark all having refused to host the UK processing centre. The latest suggested location... Ascension Island is more than 4,000 miles away. All this at a time when Russia's invasion of Ukraine has provoked Europe's worst refugee crisis since World War II. We'll be getting expert comment on this, but we'd love to hear your first-hand experiences of the UK asylum and refugee system. Is this something that you have been through yourself Do you have a family member or a friend who has experienced the British refugee and asylum system firsthand? If you want to join in and you're listening live at Byline Radio on Twitter Spaces, just tap the microphone icon in the bottom left hand of your screen and we'll try and get you on. If you're listening later via the Byline Times podcast, then of course you won't be able to join in live, but you can always send me an email to goldbergradio at (laughs) gmail.com. Excuse me. Before we get cracking, just a reminder that Byline Radio comes from the Byline Times and were funded by ordinary people like you. So to support us, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You get a great monthly newspaper, You'll also be supporting Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, which, as I say, is where this show is rebroadcast, Byline Radio, which is what you're listening to now, and a news-breaking website at bylinetimes.com. That's also where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. We're joined for the first part of today's Byline Radio by Mike Goldsworthy. Mike is the founder. <coughs> I've got this. A little bit of a cough there, forgive me. We're joined by Mike Goolsworthy, who is founder of Scientists for EU and a regular face on Byline TV, and also by Sonia Skeets, who's the chief executive of Freedom from Torture. Sonia, I want to start with you. Uh, the question we're posing today is what's wrong with the Nationality and Borders Bill? It's a bit like, where do we start, isn't it? Yeah, Adrian. I mean, I've, in all my years in this country, never seen a more pernicious piece of legislation. And it's all the more shocking that the government is trying to push this through Parliament in the midst of, as you say, the biggest mass displacement in Europe since World War II. And at heart, what this bill is about is trying to blow apart the Refugee Convention, which was concluded by states, including the UK, 
following World War II to learn the lessons of the Holocaust when countries like ours used permit-based systems to keep people out. So we had kinder transport and some of these other really wonderful initiatives that saved lives, but they were playing out again against a backdrop of a regime in which states required refugees to have pre-approval before they could turn up and claim asylum. And the Refugee Convention was about trying to do away with that principle to enable refugees to reach safety and to claim asylum on arrival. And this bill tries to reverse that by, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, criminalising those who arrive without prior authorisation with a risk of up to four years imprisonment and by putting in place a two-tier system which would on top of that, severely penalise those who arrive um, without pre-authorisation and who have come uh, not directly. In other words, they haven't been able to get on a flight from a war zone or, in in the case of our clients, at Freedom from Torture from the torture chamber. So they will be at risk of all sorts of penalties, including offshore detention. I mentioned on a previous podcast or broadcast, Sonia, that my father was a refugee to the UK via kinder transport, this system which allowed young Jewish children to settle in the UK if they had a sponsor. But as commentators have pointed out, it, it excluded by definition grown up. So my dad's parents, who were hardworking people who had done nothing wrong, were not allowed to get out of Germany and they were exterminated in the in the camps and it, it's this kind of sense that Britain has of itself of being a kind decent generous tolerant nation that is welcome to outsiders there's another side to Britain and you could argue that this bill exemplifies this other side the side that is xenophobic that doesn't welcome immigrants and doesn't welcome refugees. So, and and Adrian, thank you for sharing that because I think that the story of your family perfectly illustrates what is just so wrong about this bill. You know, this shift towards a paradigm in which people need all of this prior authorisation. We're seeing in the case of the Ukrainian conflict just how these schemes, whether it's the family migration route or um, this new community sponsorship homes for Ukraine scheme, are being used to keep out many, many more than they will help. And that's obviously by design. But you you sort of speak about the the mood of the country. And I think freedom from torture would really challenge the view that we are a mean-spirited and xenophobic country. The the problem is that the politicians at the peak of our system at the moment think that that's what we are as a country, but they're misreading the public so terribly on this. And polls over a couple of years now have shown that the overwhelming majority of people in this country want a compassionate, fair and effective asylum system for people who are fleeing war and persecution. And... Even the provisions in this bill um, have been shown to be really, really out of step with public opinion even before the Ukrainian crisis hit. So our friends at Refugee Action did a big piece of polling back in November last year that showed that only 17% of the country supported this idea to penalise refugees based on their mode 
of arrival. And we're seeing, aren't we, with the Ukraine conflict, the outpouring of public support for those who have been caught up in this conflict on Britain's borders. And we, we see a government that is persisting with this wrecking legislation, this anti-refugee bill coming back into the Commons today, in spite of all of this evidence that the public want us to, among other things, relax visa requirements so that Ukrainians can just get here in, in the you know, in, in spite of all of the evidence that the majority, like three quarters of the country, want us to be welcoming to, to refugees. So it's another example of a government that has, um, it is lying to the public, you know, when it says that this bill has public support, and they were telling the BBC that just yesterday, um, that has lost its way on some of the most pressing moral issues of our time and is dangerously out of step with public opinion on this issue of such vital moral significance for us. Sonia, stay there. I want to bring in Mike Goldsworthy as well. And Mike, you'll know better than anyone, really, given your campaigning work around the European Union, that the idea of Britain getting back control of its borders was one of the key messages of the Leave campaign. So given the success of the Leavers in the EU referendum, are people like Priti Patel not entitled to feel that they are carrying out the, the wishes of the general public? Again, like Sonia was saying, there's been a misreading there by the British government as to what most of the country actually want. There was a lot of emphasis during the Brexit debate um, about free movement as as a system. But then, funnily enough, most of the leading Brexiteers after the vote switched to say, no, no, it, it wasn't about xenophobia or, or keeping people out. It was about sovereignty and the control. So they realised that after the referendum debate, and you saw that that surge in, in xenophobic attitudes and uh, threats to sort of Eastern Europeans and a lot of the hostile sentiment, they tried to excuse themselves and tone it down a bit. But nevertheless, yes, it did get stuck in their mind that this is something that had been building up for so long, building up to the Brexit referendum. Remember that you could never walk down the street in the years before the Brexit referendum without seeing corner shops with the Sun, the Express and the Mail all blasting out headlines about how immigrants are bringing diseases, how immigrants are stealing our jobs, how immigrants are bringing in terrorism. And this was this was a almost daily um, occurrence across those leading papers. So um, I think that that has really now been ingrained in their raison d'etre for coming forward with a lot of hostility to anyone who wants to come into this country. But but um, if you actually look at polling around immigration during this time, it wasn't um, as blanket and as aggressive as you may think, um, given how the government have, have postured. And so I think they've got themselves into a situation whereby they are being far more mean-spirited, um, really miserly compared to the British public as a whole. And I think that the Ukrainian 
crisis, the invasion of Ukraine, which has spawned this refugee crisis, has really caught them off guard. But they're not thinking flexibly. Um, they're digging down into their meanness and deciding, as Sonia rightly highlighted, to do this incredible thing of pushing through this incredibly nasty bill right at a time when it looks like more and more of the British public are opening their eyes to the difference between refugees and economic immigrants, uh, to the notion of when refugee crises happen, what are the right responses? Because they're, they're seeing such lovely responses in Moldova, uh, Slovakia, Poland, Germany, Italy, Spain. They're seeing all of that and seeing that we're not doing it here. Where, where's the footage of our primary schools taking in little Ukrainian kids and giving them a hug and all the rest? So um, I think the government has, has caught itself sort of really badly out of step with all of this, but they are determined to be mean-spirited. And I'll tell you why this bill is mean-spirited. Before I before I go on to tell you why it really, really, really um, concerns me and upsets me. Obviously, uh, this bill has um, a problem with how it seeks to play with the notion of a refugee. It's not changing the definitions of what a refugee is, but it's taking this step whereby if we can make people criminals before they can be considered to be a refugee then they've already done something wrong and they don't have access to the refugee status that they want. So what the government is doing, point number one, is they're saying, as Sonia was saying before, if they come in uh, through an indirect route, oh, you should have applied for asylum um, elsewhere. Sorry, that's, that's a criminal thing that you have gone and undertaken. Um, we are setting up bespoke routes to help people in Ukraine or Afghanistan or Syria or wherever there's a crisis. Yet we're sorry that the setting up of our routes is fairly slow and bureaucratic and maybe over narrow. We'll consider it more, but this is the legitimate route. So they're deliberately setting up um, slow and narrow bandwidths for people to come in as the legitimate routes and criminalizing everything else. So this is extremely cynical. On top of that, you've, you've got this notion of indefinite detentions now being allowed. So because things are going to get a lot more complicated because we're fiddling around with our own rules, which interfere with uh, international rules on this, because it's going to get complicated and we realise that there might be loopholes here and there, what we really need is these big detention centres where we can process things at our own leisurely pace. Leisurely enough that it will scare the bejesus out of people that might want to seek refuge in our country. And there is no time limit on the detention that you can be uh, subject to should you end up in one of those detention centres. Thirdly, there is, of course, this removal of, of your citizenship. Now, this has been allowed before under legislation from the 1980s. Um, but the removal of your citizenship without notification, like it can just happen and then it is done. That is very, very scary. Now, the thing that scares me more than, than all of this nastiness and cynicism bundled up in this little piece of legislation 
is we've been crowing about Britain as a world leader in this, a world leader in that. Global Britain, look at us, we've got a new role setting examples. But what examples are we setting here when we are deliberately setting up legislation in our country to undermine the 1951 UN Refugees Convention? That is what we're deliberately doing. So we are leading and we are setting examples in how to corrode international law and international good behavior. That is what we are doing as a prominent nation. And usually when you've got a, a team or, or a society and there's one individual that decides to exploit it all by behaving very, very selfishly, then it tempts others to follow suit. And this is what we're seeing from this government on, on a national level, whether it's Boris Johnson party, get, hey, we'll treat ourselves to party and, you know, but the rest of the land needs to follow the laws. You see laws slip and behaviour slip within the country. When you've got an actor like the UK saying, do you know what? We may break international law, but only in specific and small ways if it suits us. Then that alarms the rest of the Western world. And we, when we start undermining the very fundamentals of the good part of the Western world that we sign up to, then we are tempting other countries in the face of crises to come in the future to follow our example for ease of protecting ourselves and letting other countries carry the burden. This is not what a team player does. I just want to bring uh, Sonia back in because I think there's a very important point that you've raised as well about the kind of the mean-mindedness of this bill and how Britain's been caught a little bit on the hop. And Sonia, one of the intriguing aspects for me about the visa system, which allows Ukrainians to enter the UK if they're fleeing the, the invasion of Russia, is that in a sense it bypasses our normal refugee and asylum system. The first phase of allowing Ukrainians into this country was all about having family connections here, having uh, visas, therefore, and being able to apply. That makes you different from, as it were, somebody arriving on a on a boat across the channel. You're, you're kind of bypassing our normal asylum and refugee system, perhaps because the government understands there is this will amongst the British people to help fleeing Ukrainians, but they also understand that our asylum and refugee system is actually even now designed really to deter people from coming to this country. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right, Adrian. I mean, we are seeing this extraordinary exceptionalism playing out in relation to people who are fleeing from the war in Ukraine. And I mean, I can tell you that the survivors of torture who we treat at Freedom From Torture, who come from all kinds of parts of Africa and Asia and the Middle East, are looking at this and, um, you know, getting increasingly worried because they can see, as a lot of us can, um, that this is all a political stratagem designed to buy political cover for the government through this bill to destroy the refugee protection system on which their safety depends. So it's really, really malign, and yet the government has got this kind of great line on how they're moving heaven and earth to help Ukrainians, but they're putting in place systems that are necessarily to be safe, very, very complicated and requiring a lot of red tape. So that's functioning to keep a lot of people out. Um, and then, as we've been discussing, they're 
taking the opportunity of all of that limelight they're getting for that to today be trying to get this bill through parliament that would just destroy the system on which the safety of everybody else fleeing torture and persecution and war depends. And my final point on this would just be that we really mustn't lose sight of the fact that we are one of the richest countries in the world and we take less than 1% of the refugees. And that's just so out of step with the caring country that we know and the polls show us uh, we truly are. Let's bring in Luke Calvi from Refugee Action, who's joined us. Welcome to Byline Radio, Lou. So many areas of controversy, so many areas of this bill being contested and challenged in the House of Lords. Of course, the Commons will have the chance to have their say again on those issues. One of the things that strikes me as perhaps being the most egregious, if I can use that word, is this idea of processing asylum seekers overseas. It seems to me this is something like a a national front or British National Party fantasy from the 1980s that is now being enacted in law by a British government. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Sonia and Mike. Um, yeah, I... I I mean, it's quite shocking. Uh, I'm still shocked that we're even we're even uh, at this stage. Uh, and you know, uh, it, it's um, we're essentially we, we've seen globally that it doesn't work fundamentally. It's extraordinarily costly. I mean, you know, the, the most obvious example is Australia. It's cost them an absolute fortune. So whichever way you come at this from, whether or not that's, you know, wanting to generate a position of welcome uh, for refugees, which is obviously our perspective, or whether you come at this from a sort of uh, UK PLC and, and taxpayers' pounds, it, it's incredibly damaging for people um, that, you know, we've seen huge, huge abuses of that system um, in other countries. And it's incredibly costly. Um, and frankly, it's unworkable. Um, you know, there has been speculation that the, the that Preeti Patel has been pitching up around various countries trying to find people willing to host our offshored um, uh, asylum seekers. And, it, you know, there's not a queue forming of people wanting to do that. So, again, I think it speaks to... Um, the rhetoric that the bill is built on, um, it's, its you know, I, I think the government know that this is not going to work because all of the evidence tells us that when it's happened previously. So the question then becomes, why is it in this bill? Why are many of the things in this bill in this bill? Why are we still not permitting people the right to work and the right to pay tax? Why are we still continuing to use forms of detention that we know are totally counterproductive uh, to engaging people in the immigration and asylum processes in the UK? Why is there still no fix to planned safe Roots, and I think it comes back to um, that that narrative that they're trying to build. Last week we talked about um, Ukrainians and why the uh, government aren't using any of their normal protection routes for Ukrainians, and I shared my theory that it's because they don't want the public to associate 
Ukrainians as refugees because they know that Ukraine and the situation there is getting cut through and it's potentially going to undermine all of their very careful work to build refugees and asylum seekers as being somehow um, illegal or economic migrants. And actually we're seeing right, right in front of us this situation in Europe playing out where people can see quite clearly the problems with getting into the country in order to claim asylum. You know, as as Sonia said, we are not talking about huge numbers. You know, our contribution to world safety is modest at best. And um, yet we see the newspapers full of, you know, record numbers of channel crossers. Uh, They're not record numbers. Um, These are tiny numbers that we're talking about globally. And the thought of... This, this this legislation is using a dysfunctional sledgehammer to crack a mythical walnut. Um, it, it's it's it, it's not. This is not a major problem. We are a very affluent country, and we can do so much better than this legislation is is suggesting. Um, so why are we doing it? And it comes back, unfortunately. To racism, I think, and just not wanting people in the country. It comes back to drawbridge Britain, in my view. It's, a, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, not global Britain, but but drawbridge Britain. That's a that's a very handy phrase. You're listening to Byline Radio on Twitter Spaces, or you may be listening on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast. Either way, really welcome the fact that you are joining in. And if you want to make a contribution to our conversation and you're listening live and you're on your phone anyway, in the bottom left hand of your corner, there's a little microphone icon. If you've got experience of the British asylum or refugee system and you'd like to join in, you've got something to offer or if there's a question you want our esteemed guest to answer, by all means do just tap on that icon and we'll try and let you in for a little bit of the conversation or if you're just listening that's great as well my name's adrian goldberg and we are byline radio from the byline times you can support the byline times which doesn't have any corporate backers behind it doesn't have any oligarch funding us or any corporate interest we're just funded by ordinary people like you if you take out a subscription or a membership you'll get a fantastic monthly paper the Byline Times. You'll also be helping to fund Byline Radio, the podcast, Byline TV, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. We've got Mike Goldsworthy with us today. Mike is the founder of Scientists for EU. He's the founder of the Bylines Network and a regular face on Byline TV. We've got Sonia Skeets, who's chief executive of Freedom from Torture, and Luke Calvey, head of services and safeguarding at Refugee Action. Mike, wearing our kind of byline hat, one of the, the key things that that moved the creation of byline times was the the understanding really that the conventional media in the UK was controlled in many in many instances anyway by people who have no long-term interest in Britain. They may be people like Rupert Murdoch who live abroad or people like the uh, the owner of the Daily Mail whose money is stored in uh, offshore accounts and so on. Uh, how have we got to a stage where, in your analysis of it, we have these, if you like, global players who are able to persuade us that drawbridge Britain is a good and honourable thing to be? 
Right. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? I think... Um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll manage an answer, Mike. Go on. <laughs> there's a few dynamics at play. Um, certainly, the right-wing press, the big players in the right-wing press, very much <clears throat> pull the Conservative Party in their philosophical directions. So the Conservative Party and, and the right-wing press are very, very much woven together. And, of course, the right-wing press, as you just um, highlighted, has its own controls, not, not just the owners, but some of the leading uh, sort of editorial figures. And the right-wing press has also been very good at pulling the national narrative along. So with entities, for example, like the BBC, they don't really set their own daily agenda as to what they think needs to be covered, but rather they're oftentimes responding to what is pushed out in the headlines of the papers. And so the BBC often finds itself chairing conversations about what has been pushed out by the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph and so forth and so on. And yes, you're right about um, Byline Times started up as kind of the anti-media media, the the the, the new media that wasn't beholden to any of this system of uh, journalists and um, big paper owners or anything like that, but also was willing to go and investigate what they were doing wrong. Um, you know, in, in the various crises that some of the papers have got themselves into, um, phone tapping and all the rest. So, and the Bylines Network, incidentally, which is what I uh, set up a couple of years ago, is all about doing that on the local level. So citizen journalism in the regions of the country, we've got Yorkshire Bylines, Northeast Bylines, and so forth and so on. So I think in terms of having a media that actually responds to what we are concerned about on some of these calls, there just needs to be more homegrown effort and citizen-led effort in covering all of these bases. And that, that's what we're invested in building in, so that much as you have inequality in the country in, in um, earnings and finances, which is going adrift, Similarly, with the media, you've got a sort of inequality whereby those that are controlling the narrative um, needs to have a big redress as well. And, and that's what we're doing here, because to bring it back to this current topic, as, as everyone's been saying, what the government is doing is very different from what the public at large want. And so there has to be more media that is calling out and highlighting what the public at large want. And I'll say one final thing as, as to the political dynamics here, which is even if there is a majority in this country for something, it does not mean that you're going to be able to force the government on that. If the government can get into power on 40% um, of the vote, then they only need to keep happy 40% of the people. And so there is another layer of, uh, that, that interferes here, which is the first-past-the-post system, which means that a minority can run government with an 80-seat majority. And that's where we actually have some overhaul to do in terms of the whole political structuring of this country. Um, in, in other European countries... It's, it's a much more PR-like system where parties have to work together in order to be delivering what a majority of the public 
will agree to, whereas we've got quite a weird distorted system. Sonia, it's weird to me that you can be, I think, economically liberal, you could be a conservative, and you could be pro-migration. It, these, it, in Britain, it seems that the Conservative yeah. Party, for most of my lifetime, has associated itself with policies that one way or another would restrict migration. But if it's about the brightest and the best having access to your country, uh, whoever they may be, uh, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean people with degrees, by the way, but, but people who've got something to offer to your country, that, that can include people from all over the world. And Britain has benefited from migrants all over the world. And yet we still, throughout my lifetime, have had this narrative associated primarily with the Conservatives, though not exclusively. There are people in the Conservative Party, you're trying to kick back against this. And uh, people like Andrew Mitchell, the Conservative MP for Sutton Coalfield, David Davis, who, as I understand it, and I stand to be corrected, uh, are arguing for the rights of those who've made asylum applications within the UK to be given the right to work when they are here, to actually contribute something. Too often, uh, refugees and asylum seekers are perceived or portrayed as being somehow a drain on resources. But so many people have got something to offer when they arrive to this country, but are prohibited by the rules from offering it. I think that's right. And it will be really wonderful to hear from Lou, because, of course, Refugee Action has been the absolute powerhouse behind the uh, Let Them Work campaign, um, which Andrew Mitchell is doing a wonderful job of fronting um, on the parliamentary side, including going into the bill um, votes uh, today on this kind of wider point about the contribution that refugees make. I mean, 100%. Uh, and we we are just bowled over all the time when whenever we are seeing stories in the press about refugees who've given back to this country. And we count amongst the clients of Freedom From Torture many of those people who've gone on once they've been given safety in this country and benefited from the torture rehabilitation services or the forensic medical report services that we provide um, to be able to contribute, whether as teachers or as people working at community level to support people, um, you know, getting active in politics, getting active um, in supporting great government initiatives um, to help survivors of sexual violence. I mean, it's, it's just incredible what people will give back. I mean, over the last year, we've been working really closely with this incredible doctor, Dr. Wahid Aryan, who is an NHS consultant and, you know, recognised by the government as being a real global ambassador for Britain. But he arrived here on the back of a lorry as a young Afghan child who was granted protection and has been able to go on from there to retrain as a doctor, giving back throughout the COVID crisis on the front line in the NHS. And he's been doing the most wonderful work over the last year to be a spokesperson, you know, for all of the refugees who prefer to remain anonymous um, and to be educating people about the lives and the talent that we can unlock if we just open our hearts and give protection and sanctuary to people who've lived through the very worst of humanity. Just to follow on from from some of what what, uh, Sonia was saying, um, you know, if you you take the the ban on working. I mean, 
For us, that's the most clear indication of the pernicious nature of this legislation. Um, I mean, there's so much else in the bill, uh, but but just that one issue of banning asylum seekers from working, as I said, from whatever your perspective, even if you don't come at it from a protection perspective, if you're not trauma aware or informed, you're just looking at it from a business perspective. Um, you know, we've been working on this uh, as a coalition with Asylum Matters and many, many other brilliant organisations in the sector since 2018. We've been campaigning to simply let asylum seekers work and pay tax. Just to break that down, people in the asylum system in the UK right now have to live on £5.84 a day. That's deliberately dehumanising amount of money. I could not live on £5.84 a day. I don't think there are many people that can live on £5.84 a day. That's got to pay for your mobile phone, all of your travel, your toiletries, your food. Everything you need has got to come out of that £5.84 a day. So we say to the government, fine, let people work. And they say no. Why? Why no? It, it, for us, it makes no sense. And if you, it, when we looked and we've spoken to pub, the public, and I think 81% of the public support the right to work for asylum seekers. We've seen businesses across the industries support the right to work. We've seen conservative MPs support to, the right to work. And yet here, it's still in this bill that it will not allow asylum seekers the right to work. And for us, that's about forced subjugation. It's about making people become institutionalised within the asylum system. You can't work, you can't rent, you can't live your life, you will be punished through this system. And one of the things we see operationally when we work with refugees, obviously on resettlement, we see refugees that are deeply traumatised from their displacement. And it takes them time to, to rebuild from that position. With asylum seekers, they have that trauma from their displacement, but they have huge trauma from the asylum system that they're forced through. We're seeing a massive rise in mental health crisis within the asylum system, suicidal ideation, domestic abuse, all of the symptoms of that forced subjugation, that dehumanising system that people are forced through. And that is a very deliberate it's a very constructed attempt uh, to to make asylum seekers um, uh, othered. It's it's a punishing, punishing system in the UK, and he, yet here we all are trying to stop it getting worse. That's what we're doing right now. The Conservatives has got us to the point where we're just fighting to stop it getting worse, and for us. Lift the ban is one simple thing that this government could do to immediately alleviate some of the punishment people are, are forced to go through and endure. Let's bring in Carble Time, who is uh, one of our listeners. Hello, Carble Time. How are you doing? Uh, no, but thank you very much for giving me the chance uh, to speak here and share uh, my um, um, input in this uh, today's uh, lovely discussion. Um, I have heard uh, so many things, uh, and uh, most of them were uh, just uh, hit a uh, nail on the head. Um, um, uh, um, looking at the current situation around the world, we should not forget that war and conflict and global warming will be 
the cause of uh, mass migration, uh, whether in the United Kingdom or any other country. Um, this is whether we want it or not, uh, this will happen. Um, it comes back to whether we are, as a nation or as a global citizen, are prepared for these. Um, uh, there is no doubt um, uh, there have been um, a public perception where by um, 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 a little tiny, teeny um, uh, um, asylum seeker has been uh, shown through a magnified glasses to the nation and uh, the hatred towards them and the, 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 the atrocity towards them um, is countless. Um, uh, and um, um, you only will believe it if you interview those people who've been deported or um, uh, been um, um, a victim of this uh, uh, attacks. Um, uh, I have a lot of uh, um, um, uh, Afghan um, um, asylum seekers who've been deported from United Kingdom and uh, told me the horror stories of their last week of detention, um, whereby I have been um, uh, humiliated um, uh, before they've been uh, put into the airplane without uh, their own uh, legal um, uh, um, legal um, uh, agent know about it. However, uh, coming back to the topic, I think uh, uh, personally, uh, if you look at the details, I don't think it's as bad as, it's, as uh, scary as it looks. There are certain um, um, uh, protection exist, and uh, uh, looking at those protection, I think uh, um, uh, the headlines uh, well uh, sh uh, shouldn't shouldn't be as much uh, um, as uh, uh, it create uh, the the fear. However, um, the fair fairness uh, must be observed, especially for those um, uh, those stateless people who either. Uh, choose to become a British citizen or um, uh, uh, lose uh, in the process their own citizenship. Um, if we want to protect uh, those people uh, who are fleeing the war zone and conflict, by any means they come to a, a safe haven, whether it's uh, Britain, whether it's uh, France, whether it's uh, India, um, we got to open our arms and help them. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Garble Times, but it, it's interesting that you say that the provisions of the bill are perhaps not as scary as they seem. But uh, um, Sonia mentioned earlier that kind of part of the purpose of the bill is to spread fear, isn't it? It's to make Britain, to people on the outside of the country, look uh, an unattractive option, a country that you wouldn't want to be seeking asylum in. Some people would say we should be opening our arms to people in a time of struggle and strive for them. But the bill would say, actually, it, it may just be too much hassle. You might end up going to prison if you've come from a, an unofficial or unauthorised route. Isn't, isn't that the purpose of the bill, to, to scare people away? Um, 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 I kind of uh, uh, disagree there, um, uh, byline. Um, uh, my reason is purely because um, if an asylum seeker whose intention is clear and he do not want to be a criminal, uh, he should not be fear of anything exist in the bill. The only things that I think is the protection uh, there is for those people who may um, come with a bad intention and use this... Uh, uh, things then um, uh, clearly we should have uh, not just in the United Kingdom but in any countries um, a sort of um, uh, ways that we could actually 
um, have open hands uh, to prosecute him. But um, having said that, I, I'm not uh, in the favour of uh, um, uh, stripping off them uh, from citizenship. We should not um, uh, give citizenship in first place if we think uh, with all the um, uh, information what we have in hand uh, to someone uh, who we may think it might be uh, become uh, someone dangerous to the society because as a nation uh, or as a, um, uh, policymakers, we are um, uh, responsible for the nation. Uh, but what we have to think about is the fairness. I think the fairness, that's very imp important, that we, we should not um, uh, um, create more stateless people in the world whereby uh, they have got no way to turn. Um, uh, there have been many examples which I um, um, don't want to go, but uh, mention, uh, um, I just want to mention slightly on that matter earlier on. Someone mentioned about the conservatives. Majority of conservative uh, party themselves are migrants. Uh, uh, well, uh, how can we unite people to follow us uh, in the subject where we uh, ourselves are migrants and, uh, and uh, um, helping um, others to, uh, to get rid of this uh, um, uh, uh, this uh, uh, phenomenon where by uh, people find um, a new home somewhere else and use um, their knowledge, uh, like someone uh, mentioned about an Afghan doctor who 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 who, uh, who provide help uh, in a society where um, uh, uh, he never thought uh, he would uh, um, um, uh, spend his rest of his life there. He studied uh, from uh, childhood in a war-torn country where he wanted. Um, he received the free education, uh, free um, um, uh, uh, um, support, uh, but he never dreamt that he will one day uh, not be able to provide those services that we needed to, uh, to, to, to provide back to this country. So, humble times. Thank you very much indeed for joining in. It's been yeah, really you. good to hear from you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Please, thank you. Please, thank you. Thank please thank listen you. again thank and please join in again. Thank you. Tamara wants to uh, join in as well. Tamara, yeah, go on. Hello there. Um, I just um, I wanted to just make two points. I think, um, first of all, from the beginning, um, the media, um, some of it overtly, some of it not so much, very much made a distinction between Ukrainian refugees and other refugees. Um, I, I even heard things such as, um, these are different. They're going to be able to come here and work straight away and they won't be on street corners begging for money. What's really disturbing is obviously we know that most of the time with asylum seekers and refugees, the government doesn't allow them to work, but that isn't fed through to the public. Um, the media then uses that point to demonise these people. And I think it's really good that Ukrainians should be able to come here to work, but this is how we should be treating all refugees. And just the second point is um, what the gentleman was just saying about the the people in the Conservative Party, specifically in the government, that have been either children of migrants or migrants themselves. Unfortunately, I think that towing the party line is more important to those people than actually speaking from a place of empathy for these um, for these refugees, because if yeah, I should have challenged him actually tomorrow because he said the majority of the Conservative Party are migrants, but uh, uh, certainly if you look at the cabinet, it's it's a very diverse cabinet, and we know 
from their life stories that a, a significant number of cabinet members are people whose families came to the UK from elsewhere. So I think maybe that's what he meant. But yeah, I yeah, I mean, Priti Patel's um, yeah. family obviously came over, um, but they, I think that they had British um, citizenship. So it was more of coming over for a work situation, maybe what she would now call economic migrants, who knows. Um, but I don't think that they, I think that they use that platform um, as a, because then they feel, feel like they have the uh, the right to speak about it um, from a certain perspective. But they, in my opinion, do not have the bent, have the, um, the they're not looking out for these refugees and for these asylum seekers, otherwise they wouldn't make the process and the process when they're here is so punishing. So um, I'm really grateful to all the people that are doing such amazing work because um, because these people really need our help. We should be better. Tamara, thank you very much indeed. If you want to join in, and as I say, if you've got experience of our refugee or asylum system uh, coming to the UK, or you've got a perspective from elsewhere around the world, because I know we do have an army of global listeners, if you're listening on your phone, just tap the microphone icon in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Or if you're listening again via the Byline Times podcast, I will try and reflect some of your comments as well in later episodes of Byline Radio. Just drop me an email to goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. Sonia, that's an interesting point that has been raised really about the kind of the ethnic background of a number of cabinet members who seem to be as zealous about creating drawbridge Britain as anybody else amongst their peers. Yeah, it is so sad to see people who have in their family histories the kind of experience that, Adrian, you shared at the beginning. Um, And there are a number of people around the Cabinet table who have an experience of flight and life in exile and indeed uh, persecution. I, my sort of person, I'm speaking sort of personally here. I think it's it's really important to keep a focus on the policies, though, rather than the people and the backstories of those people and what may or may not be motivating them to support the kinds of policies that they are pushing. At the end of the day, we have a bill on the table here coming back to the Commons today that will blow a hole in the Refugee Convention. And whether Pretty Patel comes or goes, you know, that's the problem. The problem is 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 the policy um, that this government is convinced is in in keeping with the the will of the the country. And we we seen before, Lou, before you joined, I cited the refugee action research from uh, late last year, the polling showing that only 17% of the country are behind this proposal to discriminate against refugees based on their mode of arrival. And I would just say I would really sort of take issue with, with, with the previous but one caller suggesting that this bill isn't as dangerous for people who are seeking refuge from persecution, as the headlines might suggest. It, it really is. It will be creating a risk for anyone who arrives without pre-authorisation of, of, of imprisonment up to four years. People who've done nothing wrong, um, people like the people we help at Freedom From Torture, people fleeing torture, who've taken their child, if they're lucky, usually not, run for their lives with nothing more than a backpack, reached here to claim asylum. 
they will be criminalised for that. They will be denied durable protection in this country, given temporary protection only. They will be placed on the outskirts of town in in these terrible reception centres, denied the opportunity to lay down links and to integrate with our communities. They will be denied recourse to public funds, denied the right to family uh, reunion and placed at risk of offshore detention. I mean, that is what's at stake here. And I just feel as an Australian an additional duty to call out the cruelty of these offshore detention proposals. Nothing has done more to damage the good name of my country than our crueler treatment of asylum seekers via these terrible warehouses on Nauru and Manus Island that have led to these mental health crises, suicide risks, terrible outbreaks of sexual abuse. This is not the way that Britain should be going. And tonight in the Commons, we're going to see an opportunity for conservative politicians, many of whom do have a good conscience, um, to signal their dissent against these elements of the, you know, the government policy. And we're, we're looking out, we're calling on MPs from every party, but especially MPs, to reject the government's efforts to place back into the bill the worst elements that were thrown out by the House of Lords a couple of weeks ago. Sonia, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. That's Sonia Skeets, Chief Executive of Freedom From Torture. Thanks also to Mike Goldsworthy, founder of the Bylines Network and a regular face on Byline TV. I just want to get a final comment from Lou Calvey from Refugee Action. And uh, just picking up on a point that Sonia made there about uh, Conservative MPs in particular, hoping that they can perhaps be encouraged to vote, uh, this is a loaded phrase, with their conscience rather than when they're government. You mentioned, Lou, your connection with Andrew Mitchell, the Conservative MP from uh, Sutton Coalfield in Birmingham. He's supporting the right of asylum seekers to work. He may well be a rebel on some of these clauses. He described the idea of processing asylum seekers offshore as creating Britain's Guantanamo Bay. So we're very keen uh, on Byline Radio to emphasise, you know, we're not party political. We do not support any one political party. This is about policies. It's about issues. It's about the, I suppose, the big structural questions as well that perhaps determine behaviour that we don't always see, but about reporting honestly and fairly and independently. It's not about demonising any one individual or, or any one political party, but about trying to do what's good and what's humane. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I don't know. Refugees and asylum seekers tend to be at the bottom of all sides of the political debate quite often. Um, you know, for those of, this, of us that have been around the sector for a bit, you know, the, the last Labour government was not uh, the bastion of protection in the UK. There were some really very, very worrying policy policy uh, directions taken by that Labour government. And we saw you know, Labour in the general election campaign a few years ago with the tough on immigration uh, mugs. Um, I think there's, you know, been missed opportunities uh, from from Labour from the, this perspective. And certainly, although this, let's be clear, the Nationality and Borders Bill is a flagship piece of Tory legislation. Um, but it, certainly we've seen really strong support 
uh, from some of those MPs. And I really hope we see some of that support this evening. I, I really hope that we do see um, we do see some Tory MPs uh, standing up for uh, some of the things that they know to be true. I would, if it's okay, just also like to touch on the the point made earlier around. Um, people from migrant backgrounds, people with uh, migrant heritage uh, in, in around some of these discussions. And I, I always feel slightly uncomfortable with me that we should somehow expect, have higher expectations of people uh, from um, diverse backgrounds. Um, like somehow they have additional duties to not be racist to, than white people. And and, and I, I struggle with that um, because ultimately, um, you know, we all have those duties. We all have those duties to not be racist, to, to uh, understand that there are incredibly vulnerable people in the world that we need to take care of. But there was always assumptions made, and it's typically assumptions made from people uh, who are racialized that they should somehow uh, be better uh, than 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 white people around that, and and I I question that, and I yeah, I, uh, I don't Luke, agree Luke, with it. Sorry, your your line's a little bit iffy. I don't know if you, your signal seems to have got worse in that last bit of. Uh, sorry, no, it's all right. I suppose the the question is around you know if people have a migrant heritage or a, you know relatively recent migrant heritage in their family. I suppose it just might kind of turn on an empathy gene for them, you know, make them understand what it is to come from the UK. So I take your point, you know, they, they don't have an additional duty. We all have a duty to be good, kind people, really, uh, and uh, view the world through that prism. That's that's uh, how I would encourage people to see. But I, I suppose it just comes from that sense, doesn't it, that if someone has got that personal experience in their family and perhaps an experience of prejudice in their family adapting to a new country, whether personally for their parents or grandparents, you might just expect them to be a little bit more aware of these issues than perhaps people who've never had that experience. Not, not necessarily, um, you know, um, and also how are we judging that, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's always always done on, on, on visible minorities. My, my family are all Irish. I am an Irish passport holder. Um, I grew up in London in the 1980s during the IRA. Um, I didn't have things uh, thrown at me in the street for, for being an Irish Catholic of Irish Catholic descent in the way that you do see that. Every time there is any form of incident regarding uh, a racial minority uh, these days, we, we always see a spike in hate crime around our client group whenever there's any form of incident uh, globally. Um, so, so I think that actually a, a lot of those expectations has um, uh, racial connotations attached to them. And also, you know, if you're talking about people like Preeti Patel, um, she was born in this country. So she does not have necessarily lived experiences of displacement or or moving to another country and again it's that, it's that reading into people that 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 assumptions that we like to make when actually what we should be doing is starting from the perspective of understanding what that individual has been through and creating a position uh, that 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 acknowledges that reality and, and if we're we're talking about policy setters here we're talking about parliamentarians and actually we shouldn't be expecting them to only lead with their direct lived experience i think it's totally legitimate to say that whatever your direct lived experience is we expect you to hold up a standard of respect for the most vulnerable in our society, regardless of your background. 
fair point. I stand corrected, Lou. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's a fair point. Let's bring in for a final uh, a final contribution, uh, Hamid Jan. Hello, Hamid. Hello, Hamid. Are you there? I think I've allowed you in. You have to just tap your microphone on, Hamid. No, we haven't got Hamid Jan. I'm not sure why. But listen, thank you to everybody who took part. Thank uh, you. Can I... By oh, is that Carbol just, Times? Is it? Yes, oh. yes. I, ju I just wanted to clarify that when I mentioned about uh, uh, the... Uh, migration background in conservative. What I tried to do is I wanted to make the point of uh, the benefit of migrants um, in any society. That could be Barack Obama, for instance, in the United States that will, in the long term, uh, the country will benefit out of it. Uh, it wasn't anything else. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you to Carbol Times. Thank you to Mara for taking part. Thank you to Luke Calvi. Thank you to Sonia Skeets. And thank you to Mike Goldsworthy. And thank you you for listening. Please spread the word. This Byline Radio episode will be available to listen again via the Byline Times podcast. It will be tweeted and retweeted endlessly. So anything you can do to amplify the voice will be much appreciated. We don't have a marketing budget. I'd just like to say as well, thank you to Harvey White, who helps me out in, to an incredible level with some of the production of the Byline Times podcast. And most of all, thank you to you. If you want to support what we're doing, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Go to bylinetimes.com for more information. We're here Monday to Friday at noon with Byline Radio. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you again tomorrow. Ta-da!